The Terrifying Lies Podcast, with music and stories by Craig Nibo. Greetings, friends, and welcome to the Terrifying Lies Podcast, where you can tune in every first and third Fridays of every month at high noon for a new story and song. I'm glad you decided to join me. Occasionally, something comes out that is so awesome that I feel compelled to share it with you. That day is today. My favorite songwriter just released a new album, and I think you're missing out if you haven't heard it. The album is called All the Eyes Can See by Joe Henry. You need to know nobody's paying me to promote Joe's new album. I just love it so much that I wanted to share it with you. I don't know where Mr. Henry gets it. His lyrics move me like no other artists can. He uses words and music to touch the emotions with vivid imagery. On this new album, he explores new territory with interesting instrumental ensemble, but doesn't stray far from the core of what makes him brilliant. I highly recommend you give this album a close listen. Put on the headphones and find a place where you can listen uninterrupted for the album's entire duration. Make sure you don't go another day without listening to All the Eyes Can See by Joe Henry. Many years ago, I released a singer-songwriter-styled album called Zombie Sing-Along. For the album, I composed a collection of songs about the undead meant to be sung around the campfire. I collaborated with a few friends by putting their lyrics to music. As part of the album, I wrote the story Blue Rinse and a Shotgun. I liked the idea of making an older woman the protagonist. Sometimes society marginalizes the old and feeble. I'm not that way. I have an automatic respect for those with more life experience than me. Older people are my heroes. Hence, they make frequent appearances in my stories. If you're interested in listening to Zombie Sing Along, you can stream it on Spotify. Ask your Alexa to play the album Zombie Sing Along by Craig Nibo, or tune in wherever you stream music. This is Blue Rents and a Shotgun, part one of two, written and performed by Craig Nibo. Mildred Beckett, the last person on Earth, loved two things more than anything in the world, her Duke Ellington record collection and her Remington over-under shotgun. At 79 years old, she didn't get out much. The fall season always excited her rheumatism, and there were also the undead to consider. Mildred sat on the porch of her home in a wicker deck chair. A half-full glass of lemonade sat on the rain-spotted surface of a glass-topped table next to her shotgun. Mostly, it was the smell that bothered her lately. A few years back, a family of skunks had nested under her porch. She'd called the exterminators. 
They dropped a handful of white pellets into an animal hole dug out under the bushes, and the skunks had disappeared, but they left that smell. The vile scent of decay cloyed and reminded Mildred of her mortality. The zombies had brought that same smell with them. Sometimes it had come up in wafts with the breeze. Sometimes it hung on like an uninvited guest. Mildred never got used to it, but the lemonade helped some. The people of Milford always prided themselves in their good living. A former mayor had once said that Milford was a small city with a big heart. Mildred remembered as a young woman swimming with friends on sunny days in the harbor, an ice-blue bed of water fed by 17 miles of Long Island Sound coastline. But now she couldn't imagine even dipping her toes into that infernal stew. It seemed she couldn't even look across the harbor without spotting at least one corpse, overturned like a tortoise, or floating on its back, staring up into the azure with white, cadaverous eyes. No, as far as good living, those days had run their course. Now it was all vigilance, shell reloads, and, of course, Duke Ellington. Supplies in the cold storage pantry had dwindled. Mildred had known, in the back of her mind, as her foodstuffs had disappeared, that she would have to brave a run to Holland's Market eventually. She'd used the last of the oatmeal and sugar. She had no beans. She needed to stock up on rice, and a little treat would be nice. Perhaps some dried cranberries or a bag of raisins. Holland's Market sat at the corner of Pleasant and Fifth, nearly ten blocks away. She could make the trip in good time on her hover-round. She'd pull the red wagon along behind her, the one in the garage that the grandkids played with when they visited. Mildred had argued with Stan, her husband, at the time they had bought the electric chair that it was too expensive. But he had splurged anyway, telling her that he wasn't about to stand by and watch his wife become an invalid. She would get around all right, and she would get around in style. Stan had augmented their Medicaid payment with his savings to buy her the Technic GT, Hoverround's best model. With a top cruising speed of 6.5 miles per hour, Mildred could make the round trip to Holland's Market quickly. She suspected, knowing that the undead subsisted on living flesh, their first choice being human, their second being rabbits, fawns, and house pets they had scavenged around Milford, that there'd be plenty of canned goods she could pile into her wagon before speeding back home. Oh, she wished Stan were around. She missed his touch and his jokes. She longed for him to rest his freckly arm around her shoulders on the porch swing and badmouth the neighbors behind their backs. It seemed, since they had moved into Jamestown Senior Community, that it had been all covenants and red tape. It felt as if once someone reached the ripe old age of 75 and ended up in Jamestown, that they had left their good natures behind and become crabby complainers, more concerned about getting the contracted gardener to trim the flower beds or for someone to fix the heaven-forsaken street lamp and spare them all that infernal buzzing. Mildred missed living back in Farmingham, where children ran in the streets, kicking scooters and soccer balls, making the most pleasant noises. If a child were to visit Jamestown, they'd be met with askance glances and more complaints to the community board about noise and about banning those infernal scooters. Someone could step on one and break a hip for the love of everything holy, but it was all moot now. Mildred would choose a cloister of carmudgeons over a horde of undead shambling through the streets any day. Mildred supposed, as she sat on the porch swing with a fly swatter in one hand and a glass of lemonade in the other, that she might take it all back. The endless ribbing and fun-making of Jamestown's most professional complainers. She missed Stan, and she supposed she missed her neighbors. Even Ethel Landry with her clandestine affairs with Harry Dinwiddle. Even Arlos Pickman with his strict adherence to communal ordinances and his tendency to make up new on-the-spot articles to fit his fleeting fancies. She had, in fact, shot Arlos Pickman herself 
when he'd come lurching to her stoop looking for fresh meat. The outbreak had been all over the news, so Mildred had known that Arlos was in himself when he tottered up onto her porch. She had known that Arlos had fallen to the virus, or Armageddon, or whatever in the name of holy light it was. Arlos had pounded on her front door until his knuckles bled, immune to pain by the numbing of his brain. Mildred had shouted his name no less than twenty times. When Arlos responded with nothing more than guttural spews, she'd opened the door, leveled both barrels of her over-under at his chest, and pulled both triggers. In one blast, she'd painted the devil on the porch wall in red and lost her soul. She took another sip of her lemonade, inhaled a long breath, and let it go slowly into the morning cool. She missed Stan. Every ounce of her logic told her that he was dead, that the zombies had gotten him. The non-ceremonial nature of his demise hurt more than anything. Before the outbreak, Stan had pecked her on the mouth and said, See you later, Mel, and gone off to town for bread, milk, and some of those infernal little Debbie snacks that he ate when she wasn't looking. Those sugar cakes would be the death of him someday, hitting him straight in the pancreas and putting him into a diabetic coma. She'd found empty boxes of the treats stuffed into the trunk of the Buick and waved them in his face, shouting him down all in the name of hard love. But he still sneaked those little Debbie treats when she wasn't looking. That little Debbie was a whore. She took another sip of her lemonade. She'd let Stan have all the little Debbie treats he wanted, if he'd only come back to her. But he'd taken the Buick, gone for milk and bread, and disappeared. Mildred couldn't imagine him shambling around with the rest of the living dead, his mouth slick with gore, looking for fresh food. No, she couldn't imagine him that way. Instead, she chose to imagine him trapped in some corner, fighting to the end. Stan was a combat veteran of the Korean War. He'd long since doused the temper and post-traumatic shock that comes with the territory, but he still had fighting prowess. Mildred had seen that when Stan had broken Bill Whitley's face with his liver-spotted right hook. Bill had it coming. He'd taken it too far with Cloris Dolman, the sweet young thing. Mildred and Stan had practically raised her in their own home. The girl hadn't had a chance otherwise. Anything but love came down from those deadbeat parents of hers. When Cloris had come over, all puffy-eyed, and told Stan what Bill had done, Stan hadn't wasted a moment even to think. He'd gotten into the Buick, drove over to Bill's house, pulled him out of the front door and beat the evil out of him. Stan didn't even explain to Bill his reasons for pommeling him, but Bill knew. Mildred and Stan were like Cloris's adopted grandparents, and grandparents protect their own. The plague, or Armageddon, or whatever in the name of all things holy it was, had probably taken Cloris and Bill along with everyone else. So it was all moot. Everything was moot. Mildred's life and everything she'd built with Stan, all moot now that the zombies had taken over. And now Mildred was out of food and she didn't have the Buick. She finished her lemonade and went back into the house. The morning had been quiet. Maybe the zombies had gone south to Bridgeport for fresh meat. Or maybe not. Either way, Mildred didn't plan on sitting around and dying. She went to the garage, taking the four downward steps sideways, one at a time. She flew open the extra-wide man door the contractors had installed when Mildred had lost much of her mobility. She unplugged her hover round from the power outlet. It was fully charged, a gift from the generator Stan had installed in case of an emergency. And boy, wasn't he a prophet on that one. Mildred looked over herself. She wore a terry bathrobe, now yellow with stains and a pair of fluffy slippers. For a moment, she considered changing her clothes, but decided that it would be silly. Who was she trying to impress? A horde of undead devil's rejects with nothing but fresh meat on their minds? She chuckled to herself as she hooked the little red wagon up to the rear of the hover-round with a length of nylon rope. With the wagon in tow, she sat in the electric chair throne and rested her shotgun across her lap. 
Stan had outfitted the electric chair with some speakers and hooked up some kind of electronic music-playing device. Mildred thought he'd called it an MP Wii. Fancy as the device seemed, Duke Ellington didn't sound the same as when she spun him on vinyl on her Victrola, but beggars can't be choosers. She didn't know how to use the MP Wii, so Stan had set it up so she only had to push one button to set a seemingly endless quantity of songs playing at random, mostly Duke Ellington, although Stan had thrown in some Glenn Miller, Count Basie, and Woody Herman for good measure. Mildred pushed the play button with her claw-like pointer finger, then angled the joystick on the armrest of the chair forward. The hover-round ramped up to speed within a few feet. She guided the chair out of the man door into the sun. She was going to Holland's Market on the corner of Pleasant and Fifth, and no quantity of heaven-forsaken zombies was going to stop her. The Terrifying Lies podcast will return after this short commercial break. Welcome back to the Terrifying Lies podcast. Dale Bernard lay face down in his dying flower bed. He clutched a little trowel shovel in one hand, his other arm ending in a stump of gore. Mildred snicked her tongue as she moved her electric chair along the sidewalk, dragging her red wagon in tow. Mildred remembered an interview with Dale in Lawn Garden Magazine back in 98. Someone had shot a snapshot of his grounds and sent it to the publisher. They'd seen something great in the photo and sent someone to interview him. She remembered Dan stating in the interview that he would always insist on maintaining the most pristine grounds in the state, even if it killed him. As Mildred looked at the stump protruding from Dan's denim sleeve and at the bite marks on the backs of his thighs and his back, she figured that his quote had ended up being more prophecy than whim or wit. Movement caught Mildred's eye ahead. Neither covenant nor mandate had dictated the almost perfect row of buttonwood sycamores that dressed the park strips along Sage Street. Back in the late 60s, when the area had been developed, the neighbors had simply agreed by handshake to plant two trees each along the strip to beautify the walk through their corner of America. An ambling figure staggered out from between two of the behemoth trees. Mildred recognized by the creature's gait that it wasn't human. She had long suspected that the undead creatures must have refined senses of smell. She'd made a habit of staying in her house as much as possible. Even hanging her clothes out to dry had drawn the heaven-forsaken creatures. Now that she was out and about, she knew that an encounter with at least one of the creatures would be inevitable. Undoubtedly, the zombie's nose had led it to her. The creature stalked across the park strip to the sidewalk and twisted around, its head dutched to one side, its arms dangling like damp towels at its waist. It set its eyes on Mildred and began a long lurch along the sidewalk towards her. Mildred didn't recognize the zombie. It must have worked at a mechanic shop, maybe Earl's place up the street. It wore a pair of navy coveralls stained with oil and something else. Such a waste of youth, Mildred thought as she broke her shotgun to check the barrels. A pair of primers from two rounds of 12-gauge birdshot stared back at her like menacing eyes. She clacked the gun back together and rested it across her lap. Stan had built a custom basket and mounted it to the side of the hover round. The basket had helped Mildred in so many ways. She'd carried groceries, gardening tools, flowers, plates of cookies for neighbors, anything she could think of in that basket. She couldn't imagine having an electric chair without such a luxury. Today, it carried birdshot. She'd dumped two boxes into the basket so she could reach to her side and draw the loose shells without fumbling with a carton. 
She couldn't imagine needing more than 50 rounds to make a round trip to Holland's market, but as she looked the mechanic zombie in the eye, she suddenly wished she had brought more shells. One never knew what threats might linger just out of sight. The zombie had emerged from the buttonwoods silently. It could have just as easily approached from five feet away as 50 yards. Mildred would have to up her vigilance if she planned to survive her trip to the grocery store. She raised her shotgun, a not unfamiliar feeling. She and Stan had quit the trap shooting club only a handful of years ago. She could disintegrate three clay pigeons before they reached the zeniths of their ascents back at the range, and this was one lone lurching zombie. She waited for the creature to wander within 50 yards, well within the lethal range of her shotgun. She drew a bead on the creature's head and pulled one of the triggers. Mildred had shot zombies before, such as Arlos Pickman when he had come knocking, but it was a feeling she never had become used to. Knowing she would ace the shot, she closed her eyes with the recoil of the shotgun. She didn't need to see ribbons of flying gore to remind her that the creature, undoubtedly bent on eating her bite by bite, was once human. After the report of her weapon finished reverberating around the neighborhood, she opened her eyes but kept her gaze high above the mess she had made on the sidewalk. A prudent turn took Mildred's hover-round into the street where she could zip by the fallen zombie without even a sideways glance. It took her exactly 13 seconds to breach the gun and reload it with a fresh shell on the fly. She counted off the seconds and felt disappointed. Her rheumatism had cost her greatly. In her prime, she could chunk two rounds back into the barrels at just under five seconds. She sighed to herself. She felt old. She drone the rest of the way up Sage Street, past the Buttonwood Company front, and took a ride on Edgeway. Lori Lyman lived on Edgeway. Mildred wondered if Lori still sold Mary Kay. Lori had always told Mildred that she wasn't in it for the money, but the pink Cadillac she drove around town told a different story. And there it was, that oversized caddy, smashed into the gigantic elm tree in the front lawn of Lori's quaint rambler. Lori had died in her Cadillac. Mildred spotted a piece of her strewn out like streamers from the broken windshield. One of those heaven-forsaken zombies must have come at her right in her pullout. Lori must have slammed into the elm while the thing splayed across the hood of the kaopectate-colored car, breaking safety glasses and groping in after her. Mildred swallowed a ball of nausea. It was one thing to discharge a firearm into the face of a nameless zombie, but the thought of cute little Lori fighting out her last few breaths against one of those creatures left a stain. For a brief moment, Mildred considered checking the pink caddy for a set of keys. If Lori had died in the car, she'd probably left it in good working order. But when it came down to it, Mildred couldn't disturb little Lori. In a way, the pink caddy acted as a kind of fitting mausoleum for the once enthusiastic Mary Kay sales representative. Mildred droned on by Lori's house, but looked down at her hands, cracked and boiled with age and lack of care. She sure did miss that Mary Kay satin hands kit Lori had sold to her on more than one occasion. Three blocks and two turns later, Mildred wheeled around onto Main Street. She spotted Holland's Market just up the way on the other side of a husked-out DQ. But she wasn't alone. A handful of zombies shambled around in nonsensical, cyclical directions. They seemed lost and, in a way, Mildred supposed, sad and lonely. She wondered if there might be a trace of consciousness left in the creatures as she raised her shotgun. Two of them spotted her and redirected their lopsided strides toward her. The other three acted in kind, as if they shared a hive mentality. Mildred only had two shots at a time in her over-under. She loved the weapon, but she would have to reload often. She cursed under her breath for not bringing the pump-action Browning 20-gauge, but her rheumatism had long since impaired her ability to chunk shells into the barrel with that weapon. 
she'd have to be content breaking the over-under to reload. She used her elbow to jockey the little joystick forward on her hover-round. No sense in losing time with the Holland's Market parking lot so close at hand. A tracer of sweat broke free from her slightly blue hair. Curse her vanity and the blue wrench she decided to use in her hair a few months ago. The stuff was supposed to make her look younger, but it had only turned her hair blue. She felt like a smurf, but she was a smurf with a shotgun. At least there was that. She stabbed at the single button on the MP Hui player Stan had installed. I'm gonna hang around, my sugar, fired up through the speakers with its grand horn opening. The corners of Mildred's lips curled up into a smile. She loved this one. She remembered seeing the Duke back in 46 live. Stan had walked up to the bandstand and given Duke a handful of bills to play Hang Around My Sugar, and Duke had come through. The band hadn't played it for better than a decade, but great tunes like Hang Around My Sugar are never forgotten. Stan had taken Mildred in his arms, and they had danced like it was the last song they would ever hear. Mildred fired at the nearest of the five zombies. The creature took the shot in the chest and wheeled around, tottering on one leg. Mildred hadn't put it down, but she'd slowed its progress. She cursed under her breath and aimed at the second closest zombie. Her second shot hit its mark, exploding the zombie's head in a mist of clump and fluid. Mildred took her right hand from the gun to cross herself for the soul of the poor fellow who had probably once been a kind individual. No sense in showing disrespect for the dead, or for the re-dead as the case was. The first zombie, the one she had gut shot, continued to stall, looking down at the hole below its sternum trying to process what had happened and exactly what to do about it. The creature's hesitation gave Mildred the 13 seconds she needed to reload. She leveled the shotgun at the zombie and fired, putting it down with the first of two fresh rounds. Two down, three to go, she thought, as she trained her weapon on another of the approaching monsters. In the meantime, her chair had made good progress. She'd nearly made the parking lot of Holland's. She didn't know why, but she sensed that there would be safety within the walls of the grocery store. She wanted to get out of the open. As Mildred sighted down the barrel at the approaching zombie, a sense of pity broke loose. The creature stared back at her through sunken eyes at the bottoms of vacuous caverns. As she looked into those eyes, she recognized traces of the poor creature's former humanity. At one time, the creature had been a sentient being, a man with a job, possibly a wife and kids, probably making a positive difference in the world. Now he staggered the streets, nothing more than a life support system for a hunger that went beyond addiction beyond even survival. Mildred wondered if there might be a way to sate the hunger. Perhaps if the hunger could be satisfied, traces of humanity might emerge from even the most vicious of the creatures. Perhaps they could even be reformed. She pulled the trigger and dropped the zombie with a single clean shot. Perhaps deep in their decomposing minds, they possessed a form of emotion. Maybe they regretted their violent acts against humanity. Maybe they even possessed memories of their former friends. Maybe they could be taught to function in some productive way in the world. The shotgun belched another round and the fourth zombie dropped. Its brains fanned out behind it in a V of splattered tissue. The last zombie did something Mildred didn't expect. It fled. Just as Mildred leveled the shotgun at the shambling creature, it turned away from her and quickened its pace, making for the front doors of Holland's Market. Mildred lifted her finger from the trigger, her brows furrowed. If the thing had the cognizance to run away... Shouldn't she let it? But then, just as the zombie shambled into Holland's, Mildred recognized it. 
She suddenly remembered the tears of Cloris Dolman, the sweet young thing who had practically grown up in Mildred and Stan's house. She remembered Cloris stammering out the words between sobs, words that told the story of how that heaven-forsaken Bill Whitley had taken her up to the cliffs after they had gone to a movie, how he had parked that rattle-bucket wagon of his father's and pushed himself on her like a stupid animal. Stan had taught Bill later, with the help of a few well-planted pastes in the face, that Mildred and he would not tolerate any maltreatment of their self-adopted granddaughter. But that hadn't ended Bill's streak of heartbreak and abuse of the opposite sex. Bill had married. Mildred had met his wife on more than one occasion wearing sunglasses to hide the bruises. Stan had freed Cloris of the trap that was Bill Whitley. But that same trap had been set again, and Bill's five-foot-nothing bride with pushing lips and blonde hair had sprung it. Now, as if spoiling the happiness of at least two women hadn't been enough, Bill had returned. He lurched on unsure legs. His skin cracked and decayed. His clothes streaked with the old gore of Mill's bygone. The fifth zombie was Bill, sure enough. Mildred recognized him, and the old fire reignited in her chest. She remembered wanting to kill the little son of a devil, but she had been forced to be content with a good beating from Stan. As Bill Whitley tottered into Holland's market, Mildred clutched down tight on the shotgun. Bill's day had come. Mildred couldn't kill him to avenge Cloris's tears. That would have been against the law. But now, circumstances being as they were, although she couldn't kill him, she felt just peachy about re-killing him. She leaned on the little joystick of her chair, urging its motor to whir and carry her at top speed towards the wide-open doors of Holland's market. She broke the shotgun on the fly and rammed two fresh rounds into the barrels. With any luck, she could put both rounds through Bill Whitley's pea-brained head and be back home within the hour with a wagon load of rice, beans, and cranberries. This has been Blue Rents and a Shotgun, Part 1 of 2, written and performed by Craig Nibo. For today's song, I give you a track from the first Zombie Sing-Along album. I collaborated with friends on some of the songs in this collection. For this song, I took lyrics written by my childhood friend, Mark Steiner, and composed a zombie love song called So Tender. Oh. 
Then they get all wrinkly and slowly start to thin. Sometimes, just like living people, zombies like to swim. Then they get all wrinkly and slowly start to thin. So tender, so. And debris flies in the air. Sometimes, just like living people, zombies nap without care. Usually, they snore, and then debris flies in the air. So tender, so. Sometimes, just like living people, zombies like to fly a kite. Sometimes, an army touches and sails into the sky. So tender, so tender, falls right off the bone. Falls right off the bone. So. Then they get real stiff and fine, 
It's difficult to stand Sometimes just like living people Zombies like to tan But they get real stiff And find that it's difficult to stand Not so tender Not so tender Sticks right to the bone Sticks right to the bone Not so tender Not so tender Don't go out alone Don't go out alone This has been So Tender. Music by Craig Nibo. Lyrics by Mark Steiner. Thanks again for joining me on the Terrifying Lies podcast, where you can listen to news stories and music every first and third Friday of the month at high noon. Be sure to listen to part two of Blue Rinse and a Shotgun in a fortnight's time. Until then, sweet dreams, or should I say, sweet nightmares. This has been the Terrifying Lies podcast. Please, come again. You're welcome here. (laughs) 